he's absolutely heartbroken when Elijah leaves him. You know, he knows he's going to depart, but he's still not prepared. This is Chapter, Verse, and Season, a lectionary podcast from Yale Bible Study. I'm Helena Martin. Join us each week as two Yale Divinity School professors look at an upcoming text from the Revised Common Lectionary. This episode, we have Erica Helgen, Associate Professor of Latin American and Latinx Christianity, and Chloe Starr, Professor of Asian Christianity and Theology. They're discussing 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 and 6 through 14, which is appointed for proper 8 in year C, the third Sunday after Pentecost. The text is read for you by student Tommy Watson. 2 Kings, 2nd chapter, verses 1 through 2, and verses 6 through 14. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the company of prophets also went, and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up, and struck the water. The water was parted to the one side and to the other, until the two of them crossed on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I may do for you, before I am taken from you. Elisha said, Please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted you. If not, it will not. As they continued walking and talking, A chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He picked up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him, and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? When he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. So I find this passage confusing, Erica. I I note one of the commentaries said it was enigmatic, 
I just don't know why Elijah is taking a little tour of central Israel at this point. Why he goes to Bethel and then Jericho or the Jordan, you know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. There's various other parts of the passage that we might get to that also don't make sense. So, you know, he's iterating around. He says, the Lord has sent me. Well, why? (laughs) To where? You know, you're not even doing anything when you get there. Yeah. I mean, to me, the section that drew my attention was this idea of not just the mantle being passed and then taken up, but this idea of, you know, mentorship. And when Elijah says, tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? You know, what do you need to carry on this movement, my legacy, right? And then the back and forth between them, I thought was interesting about the kind of double share of power. That's the part that I focused on because I too was a bit confused by a lot of the traveling elements. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, he asks for this double share, which ought to be some sort of quantifiable thing. And then he asks for Ruah, you know, your force, your vitality, your authority. It's a sort of strange thing to ask of somebody. Make me you. Yeah. And not just make me you, make me sort of double double you. you. (laughs) Yeah. This idea of the double share, you know, I was thinking about this idea that, you know, as a mentor, as a leader, the responsibility to pass on more than you got, you know, to leave the next generation with more resources and support than perhaps you had, but also this recognition that the next generation is going to have a difficult time taking up that mantle. You know, when Elijah says, you know, I don't know, you have asked a difficult thing and I, you know, it's, it's, it's not my power to give you that, right? Yeah. And I mean, and Elijah had so dominated the political life of Israel at this point that, you know, this time for his departure is such a huge thing. And we have this, these, you know, weird narrative around it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've been thinking about leadership transition too, you know, in terms of the political nature of the four-year, five-year terms in this country. And, you know, intense shift when an entire administration is booted out, you bring another one in. You know, and Elijah and Elisha had both been the leader of the company of prophets, this sort of outlaw band of prophets that are, you know, not working within the political and religious leadership of the day. Just to go back to what you said a moment ago about God choosing whether he's going to get it or not and, and him not having any say. It's interesting, you know, we don't know what our successors are going to do. But it seems to me that, you know, Elijah's right. He doesn't overpromise. You know, that sort of reminds me of the let your yes be yes and your no be no type of thing. It may happen and it may not. Not up to me. You know, I don't determine the future at this point. I'm off. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think, and it's interesting because beforehand, Elijah was the one who asked, you know, what can I do for you? And then he ends up having to say, well, actually, you know. He, he may it, not have been thinking of quite such a bold <laughs> ask at that point. Though. Yeah, I think that that's definitely true that, you know, to say, 
a double share of your power, a double portion of your spirit. That- and Elijah clearly hasn't got it at some level, has he? Because, you know, he knows it's about to happen, he gets that, and yet he's absolutely broken, heartbroken when Elijah leaves him. You know, he knows he's going to depart, but he's still not prepared. He ends up rending his clothes. And again, you know, in, in these sort of COVID and post-COVID days, we know what's going on. And yet the grief of parting is almost overwhelming at this point. And, and a lot of us are still struggling with that. Yeah. I mean, that's something that stood out to me in every step of this story. You have a sense that I'm not ready for you to leave. I don't want you to leave. And then after you've left, I'm devastated that you have. Well, and the fact that he chooses to go with him, that extra step, that extra mile, you know, sort of for me, there was those echoes of Naomi and Ruth in there, you know, wherever you go, I'll go, I'll never leave you. And yet he's taken from him. You don't have any choice in that. Yeah. You know, and that the commitment to I'll never leave you, but I know that you're going to have to leave me, right, is something that. Yes, I'm from, you know, sort of Chinese perspective, the the filiality of this, you know, the absolute, not just obedience, but desire to be with your leader, your master, whatever we call, you know, your mentor is is sort of telling here and, and how much, you know, care and dependency there is in that relationship. Thinking about it from the Latin American perspective and especially Latin American liberation theology and the movement, this idea of taking up the mantle, right, and not necessarily being prepared for it, but wanting to be prepared is something that we saw, you know, in Latin America in the 70s and 80s when leaders of the movements were being killed, were being murdered, and then you'd have to have, you know, their followers, sometimes, you know, priests and seminarians who did not feel like they were ready for the task to be pushed in that direction. So, yeah, I think that there are echoes, not just today, but throughout history. And they really were prophets, weren't they? Yeah. I mean, I think if we think of Oscar Romero, to a certain extent, was taking up the mantle of Rutilio Grande, who was a priest who was murdered by the dictatorship in El Salvador, and then the archbishop, who had just been named archbishop, who wasn't sure if he was going to take a prophetic stance against the murder and torture of the dictatorship, decides to step into that role in part because, you know, his, we could say, social justice mentor, Rutilio Grande, was murdered. And so you're seeing this happen over and over again in Latin America during the times of dictatorship and the Cold War. Well, and in China, too, over the that period of the Cultural Revolution, when all seminaries were shut down, all training and teaching were shut down, when people were sent down to the countryside from around 66 to 78-ish, in effect. There's a total loss, there's a generation gap in church leadership. Many of the elders were really quite elderly by the time they reprised their leadership roles or teaching roles in seminaries and places or as priests. And yet there was no younger generation below them. And so that's been a real issue in the church for, you know, training for that. There have been no one to take up the mantle. There wasn't such an easy handover. You know, there's been a decade plus gap. And then an even longer period by the time that you roll out seminaries and, and, you know, people are able to be trained up again. So 
there's real leadership questions in, in, in both of those places. Yeah, exactly. I think this sort of question of, you know, where is the next generation of leaders coming from is something that we're seeing over and over again. The other thing in, in I mean, I don't know about your area of the world, but in my area, in parts of East Asia, in certain churches, there's been very much a sense of, you know, father to son, father to son, inheriting of the mantle or father to daughter less frequently. Whereas here, you know, these are not relatives. Uh, and for me, that's one of the strengths of this. That It's on the basis of, you know, who you are in God and the skills and what God gives you. You know, Elisha's name meaning my God saves, you know, born for this rather than born into it, as you like. Yeah. I mean, you know, to me, this really rings true and kind of has a direct connection to some of the history that I study with liberation theology in Latin America, this idea of it's a movement, right? And anyone who is called can take up that mantle. It's not necessarily father to son or father to daughter. It's really about who is prepared or who has essentially been chosen to keep the movement moving forward. What do you make of the bizarre bit at the beginning about now when the Lord was about to take up Elijah to heaven by a, in a storm, you know, sort of the, theophanic mo- moment, they were on their way. And the sort of chariot of fire, okay, both the storm and the fire might speak of God's presence. But nobody seems, none of the prophets, nor even Elisha, seem to think it weird that he's, he's physically rendered up to heaven and in the way nobody else has been before or since. And then they don't seem to comment on it. And yet for us, you know, the, the notion of somebody disappearing from our sight in some kind of, you know, angelic or zombie movie type movement is just weird. That is not thought to be odd enough to comment on in the passage. Yeah. I mean, I, I did get a sense of, and perhaps this is maybe just me projecting what I would feel if I saw, you know, chariot of fire and horses of fire appearing and taking Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. But it does seem like, you know, the response, which does note, you know, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, right? And then the meaning of that and tearing the garment in two, you're right, perhaps it's not as direct of a reaction to the actual method or the way that Elijah uh, was taken from the world or taken up to heaven. But I thought that part of the reaction was also the kind of suddenness of the, you know, throughout this passage, we're seeing this idea of not being ready or wanting to be ready, but not knowing if one is ready for, you know, their father, mentor, leader to leave. And I do think that the manner in which Elijah leaves, which is so sudden, first he's there and then chariots come down and he's gone, is part of what is getting this reaction of, well, I knew that he was leaving, but I didn't necessarily know that it was going to be this quick dramatic. Thanks for listening to Chapter, Verse, and Season. And thank you, Professors Helgen and Starr, for being with us this week. Visit YaleBibleStudy.org to find more Bible study resources, to read the transcript from this episode, and to find all of our past episodes. And follow us on Twitter at BibleYale. Chapter, Verse, and Season is a production of the Center for Continuing Education at Yale Divinity School. 
It's produced by creator and managing editor Joel Baden, production manager Kelly Morrissey, associate producer Aiden Stoddart, and host and executive producer me, Helena Martin. Our theme music is by Calvin Linderman. We'll be back with another conversation from chapter, verse, and season.